Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People, the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and share their story. They might have overcome something incredible or they might still be on their journey, but with stories that will make you laugh, cry and hopefully feel a little bit inspired. I'm joined today by a woman who is using a challenge she faces in her life to educate future generations so they don't experience the same thing as her. Sue Hunter was diagnosed with HIV in 2006 after being infected by an ex-partner. Sue had no idea what the future would hold and immediately started her research on not only what this diagnosis meant for her, but what it meant for others too. She closed the door on a 25-year career in retail management and started to volunteer for the Terence Higgins Trust, the UK's leading HIV and sexual health charity. When Sue was diagnosed, her daughter was only eight years old. And when she was 14, Sue told her all about the virus that she'd been living with. Sue is now a campaigner for better sex education and early testing and with the Terence Higgins Trust creates awareness and understanding about HIV by talking about lived experiences. It is a complete honour to have her here, well almost here, on Zoom today. Hello Sue. Hello, Katie. Loved you to be here in this digital world we've been all thrown into. <laughs> we've already moaned about technology together, haven't I know, we? I know, I <laughs> know. But do you know what? If it wasn't for technology, we wouldn't be able to do this. So um, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So grateful today. So I actually found you online. Um, I read a uh, newspaper article about you, an interview that you'd done, mm-hmm. and I was just just really in awe of you. And I just thought I would absolutely love to talk to you further. Um, And, you know, I don't know if you'll think this is strange or if this won't surprise you, but when I um, was first attacked, you know, lots of different types of people would write to me, but actually a real high volume of people, two different types of people, people um, who've been diagnosed with HIV, usually fairly recently. And then also another section of society would be people that were transitioning, transgender. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't because it's the same thing. It was to do with the emotions, the ill-placed shame, the stigma. Um, You know, living with a facial disfigurement shouldn't be impossible, but because Mm -hmm. of a stigma that shouldn't be there, it is. And I think people with um, the diagnosis of HIV feel perhaps the same. Um, So I feel drawn to you in a strange way because it sounds like an odd connection, doesn't it? I really do understand that, Kate. I mean... 
I mean, we're talking about nearly 15 years ago. And the only thing I knew about HIV and AIDS, as it was called then, was, you know, the, the, the famous movie stars, the, the lovely Freddie Mercury passing away. And I remember saying to myself, because I love Freddie Mercury, still love the band Queen to this day. And I remember when he died, I thought, oh, my God, what a loss. And I secretly said to myself, I will never have to go through that because I'm a heterosexual white woman. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, it's come back to bite me on the bottom, as one would say. So those are my memories of what HIV and AIDS was. My earlier memories before that was when we had that massive campaign and we had those leaflets coming through the door, um, don't die of ignorance. You know, there were like tombstone adverts. And I remember my mother picking the leaflet up and said, oh, no, that doesn't belong in our household and throwing it in the bin. Mm -hmm. So those are my early recollections of what HIV was. Now, I believe I'm a fairly well-educated person. I, I know quite a lot about a lot of things, but you know what, Katie? I didn't know enough about HIV and that's the honest truth. Mm. I thought HIV happened in other communities. I never thought I'd be ever touched by something. So, but you know, when I got diagnosed myself, it was an absolute life-changing moment. Um, not just for me, Katie, but for my family, because my family had the same misconceptions. And I'm going to admit it, I had misconceptions. Yeah. I thought HIV happened in the gay community. Mm -hmm. I'll be absolutely honest. Well, there might be a lot of people listening that are shocked to hear a female talking about it, because it's not often we hear women talking about it. No. And I think to be able to get certain messages across, I think you need to be really honest with yourself. Mm. And that's how I sort of talk about my journeys that I had misconceptions. I thought this, I thought that, but you know, I've got the information now. I know exactly what HIV is. And people ask me, oh, where did you get that from? You know, I thought, oh, wow. You know, I said, well, yeah, unprotected sex. I mean, as if they're, they're, you know, thinking of something, oh, God, I've been attacked or something different. But um, that's interesting, isn't it? What a different, a different sort of viewpoint they would have if it was a homosexual guy, you know? Yes, exactly, exactly. But so, you know, um, I'd come out of a marriage. Um, um, I'd started a new relationship. Um, he was a lovely guy, but, you know, we sort of, we, we split up. It wasn't, the, the time wasn't right. My daughter was still getting over the separation from her father, even though she had that close contact with him. And I just decided to end the relationship. And it was just literally weeks afterwards um, that I did end the relationship. I started to get really strange phone calls from him. He'd been ill. He'd been back and forwards to the doctors with chest infections, with throat infections. And it wasn't until he was actually diagnosed with suspected pneumonia in hospital, they actually offered him a HIV test and thank goodness he took it. Uh, he recovered from the pneumonia, believe it or not. Mm. And then when he came out of hospital, he came to see me. And that was the last time I saw him. And he came to tell me that he was HIV positive and he urged and encouraged me to go for a test. And I was absolutely I'll be honest, I was disgusted. How dare you come to my door talking about things like that, yeah. the misconceptions, yeah. you know? And he came face to face. He didn't phone you. He came no, to talk to didn't. you. Yeah. Absolutely. What a difficult conversation for him to have with you before we yes. even think about you being on the receiving end and, and, you know, incredibly 
I mean, uh, uh, was it, what did it sink in? Was it surreal? Uh, no, it didn't. I thought, and I felt, no, no, I've watched the movies. That happens to movie stars and pop stars and that happens to gay people. All those misconceptions. So I was quite angry, but I did go for a test. Two weeks later, Katie, after I got, um, just before I got my results of my HIV diagnosis, he passed away. Oh my goodness. He was one of the persons that were... Um, what time of the... What period are we talking about then? When was this? Um, it was in the um, the July of 2006. Oh, so things were fairly advanced with medication then, weren't they? Yeah, they were. But what happened with him, he, he was one of the persons which are still diagnosed late. Right, okay. Um, and to, to be honest, I'm going to be honest again. And I, I believe he was perceived as not being in the community that HIV was affected by. Mm -hmm. But that's my personal opinion. When he actually got his diagnosis, he got very ill very quickly mm -hmm. and he didn't survive. And that's, that, so that's the truth. So basically then I'm left now, I have HIV and then I've lost someone very dear. Very confusing, isn't it? Yes, very. So, okay, so what do I do with that information? Well, obviously, I didn't tell a lot of people for a long time. I, the only person I told in those first couple of months was um, my best friend, Suzanne. I've known over 50 years today and my younger sister. How did they react? Um, they had very similar misconceptions to me. Um, my friend Suzanne said, well, HIV doesn't happen to women. You're going to be OK. This is before I got my test result back. So I think from knowing me as now being HIV positive, not only have I educate, I'm, I'm educating other people, but I'm educating the people that are close to me, like my family and my friends. And so I often wonder, you know, if I'd never been diagnosed, and this is quite ironic, if I'd never been diagnosed, would my daughter have the information of HIV? Would my family and my close friends have the information of HIV? Maybe not. Mm. And that's a thought, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, absolutely. So when you told them that, that you know, you talked about the misconceptions, mm. did they pull back from you? Did they support you? What What was their reaction? A blame came into it. You know, it was the other, he didn't, he, he must have known, he should have known, he must have known. But, you know, that man lost his life to HIV. I will never... And, First and foremost, I said to people that were having those misconceptions around the time, if it hadn't have been for him mm. coming forward, I had no signs or symptoms, Katie. Yeah, okay, that's I true. Ha I, was, I was healthy, I was well. It was only because of him that came forward, I went to get a test. Yeah, because so. otherwise you wouldn't have, would you? I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. I've, I've very rarely been to the doctors, you know, mm -hmm. I had no reason to go to the doctors. And you were 47 when you were diagnosed. I was. Yes, yeah. I was. So it's not mm. like when you're young and you might be going to sexual health clinics regularly, you know, it's not really something somebody's doing at 47. I thought at the time, well, you know, SDIs are for younger people. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have to worry get, getting pregnant because, mm. you know, I'm sort of premenopausal. And, and that was a mistake, but you can't keep sort of blaming yourself. You have to sort of move forward and move on and yeah. sort of perhaps, you know, try and change other things uh, for other people from perhaps what you've done, you know? How did you feel about him then? And how do you feel about him now? Um, I felt back then very sad. I still today feel very sad, but 
I thank him every day for coming forward because mm-hmm. I live well with HIV. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been able to um, have a new life, continue life, do amazing work. Mm-hmm. And some some of that I... I I blame him in the, in a good way because yeah, I get that. It's like a sense of gratitude, isn't it? Almost, yes. he did the right thing by you. You did, and he must have he must have felt so scared. He must have been so 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 scared. Mm. You know, when you got that diagnosis and and the devastation for his family as well. You mm-hmm. know, so how how could I ever blame him? Yeah, it's quite courageous because he could he could have disappeared, couldn't he? He could absolutely. But he came and he he came to you in person, and w- he did. What al- what other outcome could you ask for? You know, exactly. Other, other than that, um, exactly. I wondered, sort of, you know, we're talking about your life pre the diagnosis and post. Do you separate mm. your life into two two lives pre and post, or is it one one life lived? Um, I believe they've sort of integrated into one. Mm. Obviously, I like to reflect. I like to look back because um, I think by looking back and thinking what was, I think you can, for me personally, I'm able to move on. Mm. And think, okay, um, I'm certainly, and I know now, I'm certainly not the only woman in the UK living with HIV. And if you think of some of the stats, Katie, just under 40% of people living with HIV in the UK are women. I didn't know that. That that surprises me. Considering we've got about 105,000 people living with HIV in the UK. So... And like you say, not a lot of people know that. And that's strange, isn't it? Because, you know, I don't want to generalise, but on the whole, women, we're more open about mental health and emotions. We're Mm. more open about medical things, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, diseases, viruses, conditions we live with. Do you think that's not true when it comes to women with HIV? I believe that's correct. I believe um, women are more apt to talk about things in mm. general, about health. I've known a lot of, um, as friends and as partners, HIV positive men in the past, and they're very different from HIV positive women um, that I've known. Um, and if you, and I sort of put that down to, you know, they've been brought up in a community where a man doesn't talk about his health. Mm-hmm. We know all about that, don't we? Yes. We, no, 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 no. I'm not going to the doctors. And I say that because I've experienced what, what I've heard from other men, heterosexual men living with HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel as though women are, well, I suppose that whether it's, you know, we a lot of women, and I know a lot of HIV positive women that have had children and, mm-hmm. and the children have been born without HIV. So I suppose, you know, with the children and that sort of thing, we're apt to more in general, I think, talk about health, I believe. Yeah. And it's strange, isn't it? Because I'm thinking that in my own life, I have three people in my life living with HIV um, that are all men. Um, But maybe I do have women in my life that are HIV positive, but have chosen not to tell me that. Yes. And, you know, is that partly because society shames women around um, being sexual and promiscuous and HIV is wrongly associated with being promiscuous. So for a man, it's easier to talk about it because men are not condemned for having a healthy sex life, whereas if women are often quite shamed for that. 
Absolutely. And that is so wrong. I mean, for goodness sake, to have a, a healthy sex life. I, know, I mean, we talk about this in, in our schools that we go to, you know, never be ashamed or feel embarrassed. We need to talk about sex more to be open about things. But yes, you have, you've probably got a valid point there, you know. Um, but we do need to definitely talk about it more. Has it made, um, you know, you talked about how you separated from the father um, of your daughter. So with your relationships now, has it made it more challenging? Um, and, and what's your protocol? I mean, you're very public about your status yes. anyway, but... Mm-hmm. That, that that sort of happened over... Um, I mean, when I first started talking about um, my HIV, my journey, I used to sort of not go to any of this. This is in the period where I, I hadn't told my daughter. Mm. So I was doing the work and I wasn't sort of working near her school. I didn't go into schools that were near her school. So I was very sort of, you know... Um, but obviously now I'm more open now. But as in relationships, yeah, disclosure is massive. And, mm. and that's, you know... It's the fear of being discriminated. It's the fear of people walking away. <clears throat> I've had relationships. I've been married. Um, I, I'm seeing somebody else, mm. you know, um, but that has t- that's part of the journey. That didn't happen all of a sudden. Yeah. It didn't happen all of a sudden. I remember, he, here's the thing, you know, when we talk about stigma, I met somebody about, oh, my goodness, about, oh, gosh, four something years ago, and we got on well, and, you know, when you have that spark and you, you know great conversation you get that you know mm. and then I, I thought to myself come on Sue you talk about HIV on a platform you, you know what what have I got to lose mm-hmm. so after a couple of dates and um I sat down I said I just want to let you know I've, I'm, I've been living with HIV for x amount of years as it was he paused he looked at me and he said I value my own health too much to have a relationship with you and walked away. Right. Wow. I sat there. I took a deep breath. And my first thought, Katie, was, I wonder if he has ever had a HIV test himself or when was the last time? Yeah. It should be very regular if he values his health. (laughs) Of course it hurt me. You know, when I turned my family, it hurt my family, but... Then I thought to myself, okay, let's try and turn this around. Mm. Okay. I was probably there some years ago with those misconceptions. Mm -hmm. So let's try and talk to more people. Let's try and get that understanding of what HIV is Mm. into more people, into more communities. So I, I turned it around very quickly. You touched on your family there. My family was shocked. Um, but just let me tell you when I told my daughter, I mean, that's, you know, when we talk about disclosure, one of the biggest disclosures is telling your loved ones and Mm. especially telling your children. I mean, I know some, some women, Katie, that have never told their children and that's because society has made them feel as though ashamed and what have you. And it's so, so awful. But Uh, My daughter was, like you said, my daughter was eight when I was first diagnosed. And I thought to myself, you know, I need to understand, I need to educate myself Mm. about something I am living with before I even have that conversation. Yeah. So she was 14. The talk of boys was coming on the scene. I thought, okay, mother's intuition, got to have that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, because I wonder. Because I wonder. Well, you. She was eight when you were diagnosed, and I thought. Yes. Well, I wonder why you waited to fourteen. But you're right. Mm-hmm. That's when you know periods, bras, 
boyfriends, sex, everything comes up, doesn't it? Yes. And she sort of knew some of the work I was doing at that time. I was going into schools talking about sexual health, but HIV was never mentioned. Mm. So I remember I was not, I knocked on her door this particular afternoon. She came in from school and I said, and she had the iPhone on, she had the computer on, she had the music on and she said, what do you want mum? I'm doing my homework. You know what they're like. Yeah. Anyway, so I said, oh, mum, just want to have a bit of a chat, sweetheart. And her eyes go up to the ceiling. Oh, for goodness sake, mum, what are you banging on about today? You know, yeah. anyway, I'm sitting on the bed and I said, I just want to let you know that mum, uh, was has been living with HIV for, um, gosh, it must be yeah, six years because I kept it a secret. Yeah. Okay. So everything went quiet. Yeah. And the, the iPhone that was attached to her ear at the time dropped, fell on the floor. She looked at me. The tears were coming down her face. Oh. And she said, you're going to die, mummy, aren't you? Oh, bless her. That's her first thought, that fear, yeah. losing you. And I looked straight at her and I said, no, mum takes medication every day. I had been promised a normal life expectancy. And she said, hang on a minute, mum. Do you know that couple of years ago, you were up, it was about 10 o'clock, she said, I came into the lounge and you were taking these tablets and you told me they were for the menopause. Oh, God, they don't forget anything, kids, do they? <laughs> they don't forget nothing. Yeah. I looked at her and I said, you've got me. We laughed yeah, and then we both cried. Oh, I've got tears in my eyes because ultimately <laughs> all your kids all your kids want is they just want mum to be there and there's no exactly. judgment. You know, they love you and no. they don't want to lose you. Mm-hmm. It's such a beautiful bond, isn't it? But what happened after that, which I was not expecting, she said, um, can I tell my best friend, mum? Is it okay to tell people? I said, sweetheart, you can tell anyone you want, mm. but I need to just prepare you for possibilities uh, some people may not understand you know and I had to mm-hmm. you know and she decided not to tell mm-hmm. anyone for the next two mm-hmm. years and there was a consequence to that uh, there was a consequence of keeping that information inside oh really I hadn't thought of that okay absolutely so, so she had mental she health problems yeah, we had some mental health episodes at school um we had some you know we, we guided her through our, with the tutors at school and that lasted a couple of years we got her into college and then she started telling people uh, we had some fantastic support at the school let me just That's say good. but that was a very challenge in it and you you've touched on mental health and, and especially mental health with young people at the mm. moment and that's what keeping a secret could possibly do mm-hmm. yeah because it eats away at you doesn't it it's that feeling of, is my best friend not going to understand? Yeah. Is, are they going to go away? And you know what kids are like, that is that their friends are their, their world, you know, mm. at that sort of time. Um, but you know what? She is brilliant. She's 23. Oh, my goodness, 23 now. She's got a brilliant job. Mm. And she says, she often says to me, she goes, um, Mum, are you ever going to get fed up of going on about your story? That my kids say to me. <laughs> <laughs> is that yeah. what they say? And I goes, no, she said, I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> it's amazing. Is it? I mean, because I, I, I suppose to me, I wouldn't, I think with children, and I experienced this myself as well, children are very pure, very innocent. They are curious, which is great. You know, mm-hmm. they're inquisitive. We don't want to shut that down. Mm. I sometimes think it's the parents' um, prejudice 
that comes onto the children. And the parents can not be educated and not seek to further their knowledge and, yes. and developments in, in this area. So did you have any bullying or stigma that was kind of coming down from the parents of you can't be friends with her anymore or we don't want to associate with that family? Was there anything like that? Mm-hmm. And not personally, but what I have experienced, because a lot of the work I do, Katie, is in our local schools and colleges and universities. And we go in as part of the town signatures, positive voices, and we talk about our lived experiences. Mm. What we have found on some of our sessions when we used to do face to face in the olden days. Um, oh. <laughs> um, we, I miss those days. We, we, I know, I know. <laughs> We felt that on some occasions we were educating the parents through the children. Yeah. And how we seen that was some of the comments and some of the questions we were getting from the young people. But we we answered their questions and we give them the, the correct answers. Mm. So we we're hoping that they will take some of that correct information back to perhaps parents that are like me that came up from the 70s and 80s and had them tombstone advert Mm -hmm. leaflets coming through the door. Hello, you hungry people. I bring news. Yes, season five of Out to Lunch with me, Jay Rayner, is upon us. The world may have been in meltdown, but I've been using my time wisely, sharing fabulous meals with fascinating people and asking them prying questions. As a long-serving restaurant critic, my theory has always been that the best interviews happen over food, and the proof is this podcast. In season five, you'll find me dining my guests in top restaurants or with lockdown-compliant takeaways over Zoom. People like Darren Brown. Well, I do like a Gruner Feltlet. Do you do that by the glass? Yeah. Yes, we do. What would I like? What would you... <laughs> Don't start. Oh, do, I, do I have to guess? <laughs> Paloma Faith. I've also been told off for telling Samuel L. Jackson what to do. Sophie Ellis-Bexter. Just bring it all in. He's, he's shucking the oysters. Somebody's shucking oysters? <laughs> The oysters are being shucked at the boot of the car, apparently. Noel Clark. So we have lobster miso. Oh my god. Oh my. <laughs> Philippa Perry. I always like a man in makeup because they're, they're improved by it, but I hate false boobs. Hate them. Tom Allen. I do know a bit about patissiere because I knew what a ganache was before any of my friends at school did, but then they were actually quite happily getting fingered so (laughs) and more so subscribe now in all the usual places episodes drop weekly from tuesday the 26th of january 2021 I feel like you're quite an unstoppable force I can tell just from the just from this uncle oh Um, I I think it's become like a, a sort of vocation I mean I think you sort of do you understand yeah. that sort of vacation? Of- because obviously like the diagnosis was life-changing, but actually your whole career changed. You know, I, I said in the introduction, you know, you had a long mm. career in retail. Um, and then mm. when you got, was it immediately after the diagnosis you just decided to change your career? It was a few months. I was, I had quite a bit of time off work when I first got my diagnosis to sort of come to terms well. You know, it took years to literally come to terms. I took some time off from work and when I went back, I just didn't feel the same anymore. I thought people know here at my workplace, people, you know, I had this sort of, you know, and it's all perhaps with my own mental health back at the time. People uh, know what my stasis is now. Mm. And I 
I went through a lot of changes and I, and I started at that time, I did start volunteering at the Town Sickness mm-hmm. Trust because that's where I first started. And um, so I left this big job that I had and obviously the work that I do has been the last 10 mm-hmm. years with the Town Sickness Trust. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It almost feels like, <laughs> I don't know if this is fair to say it, but your diagnosis and the subsequent changes after that, particularly in your career, left you empowered? Yes. Sometimes I can't explain. I think what what happens, Katie, is when I see people being hurt, people being affected by stigma and discrimination, something comes over Mm, me. I get that. Yeah. It's so clear from your experiences that more education is needed and it and it's Absolutely. it's so fantastic what you're doing. Um but what do you think is the most effective way to educate people? I believe it has to happen in the classroom that we we need to make sure that every young person leaves education with the tools to equip us. I mean sex is is part is going to be and will be part of all of our lives. Mm. We need to know how to take care. We need to know how to test for chlamydia, HIV. We need to have conversations. We need to give every young person that leaves any form of education the information, the empowerment mm-hmm. of to go and get a test. We need to get rid of the shame, yeah. and we need to talk about sex more. So I'm I'm very much as in starting in the classroom. But to be honest, it doesn't stop there. That's the starting Mm -hmm. point. So we talk in the workforce. We talk to corporate workforce. We're now talking in health professions. I live very healthy. I live very well. But what can kill the hearts and minds of some positive people is stigma and the discrimination. Mm -hmm. So we need to talk more freely about HIV. We need to make sure that, you know, people are offered tests, not just if they think they may be at risk, just as, you know, you're going to, let's for an example, you're going in for a blood test, perhaps you're feeling a bit anemic one day, let's do a full set of bloods, mm. pop a HIV test in there. Yeah, as, yeah just as, as routine. Making it normal. Yeah, yeah. What do you think are the most common misconceptions around HIV and what are the truths? There's only about three ways HIV can be passed on. Uh, 97% of uh, the, the, the population that we live in is HIV is transmitted from unprotected sex. Now, not a lot of people know that either. So that's 97% of the world that has contracted HIV is been by unprotected mm. sex. Then you've got less than 1% of um sharing drug-injected needles, and then you've got an incredibly, especially in the UK, incredibly low percentage of vertical transmission Mm -hmm. because, hey, a lot of women, Katie, find out when they're pregnant that they're HIV positive because it's probably the only time they would think to have a HIV test. So they, they will immediately go on to medication. The medication won't affect baby. That means it gives mum choices, mm-hmm. whether it's vertical or cesarean. Mm-hmm. All right, okay. So, you know, and that is really valid in some faith communities because they see a vertical transmission as part of their faith and part of their religion. So that's a massive game changer. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, babies can be born negative. And then we've got the, the magical, another game changer called PrEP. Mm-hmm that is bringing down HIV transmission. So PrEP is a drug, yeah. right? 
So um, basically, it's, it's, it's very similar to the drug that I mm-hmm. take for HIV. So basically, you take that um, PrEP medication, you take it every day, and it stops you from getting HIV. You know, the the the, the mission, uh, one of the missions of the Terence Higgins Trust is to keep um, HIV-negative people negative, mm-hmm. okay? And we'll do what it takes to keep everybody negative, mm-hmm. Testing regularly for HIV. If you think you're at risk, there's a there's a fantastic drug called PrEP that will keep you negative. Mm-hmm. Okay, you've got to look at the other SDIs as well, but we're talking about HIV that could be incredibly detrimental to your health if mm. you know uh, if it's not treatable. If it's not treated. So at Terence Higgins Trust, there's um, I'm really interested in the programs. There's a, a program called Positive mm. Voices. Can you tell me about that? It, Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. That's the, the, the project that I manage mm-hmm. um, throughout the country. It first started in sunny Brighton, oh, my goodness, about 11 years ago. And it started very, very small. And um, we've just literally, I, I took over the project a few years ago. And it's just amazing. We do it all over the country now. So basically, um, it's positive people that tell their story from all different communities. We've all got, I manage about 30 volunteers that have all got an individual different story. Mm. We go into schools, we make it interactive. We, it's probably the first time, you know, we give the, the kids an opportunity to ask questions and it's absolute. you know, I tell you what's so empowering for us, Katie. Back in the olden days when we used to do face-to-face, uh, we're still getting it on Zoom actually when we've done a talk. We have um, the children children come up to us and say, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I now understand about HIV. Can I shake your hand? Yeah, oh, so powerful. You know, it's worth getting up at six o'clock in the morning to go into London to do a talk like that when you have one person, yeah. one young person say, thank you. Yeah. I now understand. Thank you so much for sharing. It's so powerful, isn't it? It's why in-person is so important because you can't be what you can't see. So if you never... M- you know, exactly. if you don't meet somebody living a fulfilled, happy life with that virus, mm-hmm. then it won't yeah. impact you in, in the same way. And, you know, you can't want change in society, but not go and be that change. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. I always think yeah. about myself, if 10 years ago, I could have seen a woman with a facial disfigurement, married with kids, having a career, feeling sexy, not feeling ashamed. It would have changed those first few years Absolutely. of how I felt, you know, it just, mm. you need to see Absolutely. that representation. And mm. I can't think of a better person to lead a campaign like that than you. I mean, you're so passionate. It's just, <laughs> I, I just don't, you know, I've got this thing, you know, if I, if I, if there was one law I, w- I could introduce is a law against stigma and discrimination. Mm, yeah. If I, if I was up there with them, um, I think it's, everyone, everyone has got the absolute right to be who they are, to live with what they live mm. with. And, you know, we live in a, a society that we have an opportunity that we, we can. Mm. And Katie, I have HIV. I know many people that live with many, many worst de- debilitating conditions mm-hmm. i feel lucky i feel blessed that i live in 2021 in a country that first of all i don't have to pay for medication i don't have to pay for my health care i feel privileged and that's why you know i work constantly with not just me but with uh you know the tones they can just work with 
the healthcare to, because we want, you know, there's going to be, there's a lot of stigma in healthcare. Mm. I remember going to my GP just a few years ago and I'm sitting there and I, it was, t- I can't even remember what it was. It was totally unrelated to my HIV and I hadn't seen this doctor before. And he said to me, and you looked on the screen, he said, oh, I see you've got HIV. So I said, yes, doctor. He, and he turned around and he said, where did you get that from? I, I am sure he didn't mean to say it that it's way. It's so uneducated sure though didn't. for a medical professional. I'm so sure. Professional. And, but the thing is I paused, I looked straight at him and I said, from unprotected sex doctor. Oh, right. And then he sort of shoveled his papers and got on with it. And I thought, well, okay. And that was a few years ago. We need to go and speak to GPs. Yeah. yeah. We, can't ex- we can't expect them to know everything. I'd be really interested to know your thoughts um, on the new Channel 4 show, It's a Sin. For anyone oh. that hasn't watched it, incredible uh, drama. It's a drama, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. It's a drama, yes. It's gone out yes. and it's it's following the story of a group of friends that become infected with HIV uh, back in the 70s, I think it was set. That- uh, it, was the, it was the early, early 80s. 80s. Right, okay. It was the early 80s, yes. Um, I watched it and I had this overwhelming feeling of sadness and what they went through Mm -hmm. and how they were treated. I think also because we're all very emotional at the moment in lockdown, you know, you just don't want to see any more pain or suffering and your empathy levels are so high. Of course. What's your opinion on the programme and what conversations do you think it started? First of all, I loved it. Um, It was very sad. I have some friends that... some friends that have been living with HIV for 36, 37 years, Katie, you know, and they say, Sue, they've just touched on yeah. it. They've just touched on it. But what, what, what I believe it's done, it's brought HIV back into focus, back into, back on the table. So that means we can say, yes, that's what it was like mm. then. But we have amazing medication we have education if you want to care to listen Mm. HIV wasn't it's not what it used to be but you know what it's like with anything you know I think we need to remember what happened for us to move forward with everything this is what you know we didn't have the drugs back Mm. then we didn't have the information the education the stigma and discrimination was absolutely lock the hospital wards Mm. Literally, you know, used to lock them in. Um, But yeah, that was then. But we need to remind people that because it was sin has been brought back on the agenda for conversation. A lot of the work now we're having in Katie and through the Town Seekers Trust, we've seen it's a sin. We want to know more. Right. Come and and speak to us. Good, yeah. Big tick, you know. That's really positive. Um, What about then for, you know, there's going to be lots of different people listening to this podcast who might have people in their life that are affected. They might be dealing with the diagnosis themselves recently. What would you say specifically to other women um, who just had a positive result or lived with a positive result to to make them feel Mm -hmm. more empowered about that status? You do not have to go through this on your own. There is amazing, amazing support out there especially lots of support for women. You do not have to go through this on your own. And my personal message to them is you can live a long, healthy life. If you're of still childbearing age, you can have those children you want. You can do that job you've dreamed about since girlhood. You can do that journey to when we're allowed to travel, wherever you want. Mm -hmm. 
there is always going to be, there can always be someone to talk to. You don't have to go through it on your own. Mm. My God, see, you're actually just making me cry. I don't know if I'm just losing oh, it in lockdown. <laughs> oh God, I just feel like you give me goose pimples when you talk because oh, it's just oh. like, to know, it's just this feeling of like, it isn't over and all that stigma and, and, and all of that uh-huh. shame isn't real. It's built by misconceptions mm-hmm. and lack of education. It's not real, you know? And it's just yes. like, mm-hmm. I feel like you've just given like a speech at the White House. I feel like quite overwhelmed, oh. sorry. I need to like pull myself <laughs> together. Um, but it's amazing, isn't it? To be like pulled pulled back and, and empowered and, and, and told that actually yeah. whatever society says, you are not that and you are everything that you no. want to be. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just wondered what's your hope? What's your, what's your dreams? You know, you're, you're spreading all this awareness. What are your hopes for the future? Now, obviously, um, just reflecting back to one of the, 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 one of the major focuses of the Towns Higgins Trust, we want to end HIV transmission by 2030. But for that to happen, we all need to get involved and we're very much wanting to make sure those messages get across. And some of those messages, you know, if anyone is sexually active, you owe it to yourself. Look up. I mean, your body is important to you. Test regular. Don't feel ashamed. Feel empowered that you have and take and you are taking care of your sexual health. We want to we want to have integrated um, HIV testing with all our healthcare services. So it's not like it's, like it's on the side. Oh, do you want a HIV test as well? But you know, my own personal as a woman living with HIV in the UK. And I'm going to sort of um, sort of go back to one of my favourite sayings from Martin Luther King. And one of his famous sayings is, I have a dream. And you know what, Katie? I have a mm. dream. I have a dream that my, my daughter's children, maybe children's children, will not have to go through stigma and discrimination because someone is living with HIV or associate with someone living with HIV. That is my personal dream. And you know what? I, I believe yeah, in Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's, I don't even think it's a dream. I think it's a reality that you will get to, you know, like, can't we just get rid of all the leaders and have Sue Hunter for president? Like, we just solve all these problems. Oh, you're sweet. <laughs> get Boris oh, out my goodness. get you in. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, I, mm. I know. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's been a challenging year for all of us, mm. you know, but um, some of the other work I do, Katie, just very quickly, but um, I'm part of uh, the only radio show in the UK mm-hmm. that's dedicated to um, people living with HIV. It's the HIV Hour and it's on Radio Reverb um, in Brighton. Mm-hmm. And I've been part of that for the last three, four years. And all the presenters are living with HIV. Mm-hmm. And we, we do um, interviews with people, influential people, doctors, nurses, and people are just living and telling their stories. So I'm really proud to be part of that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, that gets those messages across. And also it can be... You know, I know a lot of people, Katie, that are too scared to talk about their own mm-hmm. status. A lot of them tune into the show and that makes them feel as though they've got a voice. A community sense as well, yeah. Part exactly. Of oh, I've loved talking to you. I, I knew I was going to. When I found you online, I knew I wasn't going to click with you. Oh. <laughs> like, this is so great. No, it's been lovely talking yeah. with you as well, and Katie. Just, it's been great. As a mother of two young girls, thank you for mm. everything you do. Thank you Thank for you. using your pain to triumph and mm-hmm. and to try mm-hmm. and ease other people's pain. It's such a courageous yes. thing. Thank you so much. No, that's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please follow where you get your podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show or share on your socials.